Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. And this week, The Economist is asking, is Canada's liberalism a model for the world? 2016 will be remembered as the year populism surged. I want to build the wall. We need the wall. When Mr. Trump's nostalgic nationalism and grievance politics rose in America and beyond. But we have some bad hombres here and we're going to get them out. Marine Le Pen and her Front National is making headway in France. And let's not forget the Brexit backlash against liberal elites. We have to make people understand this may be the last opportunity we ever get to become a normal country once again. But progressives should take heart. There's still one large landmass that's a kind of paradise for fans of the open society. Oh, Canada. The economic anxiety that people around the world are feeling is not solved by trying to turn the clock back on trade and globalization, but on you know, making sure that it works for everyone. That's the country's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, enjoying high ratings and a bit of a buzz as a youthful, energetic, centrist leader, at least for now. Our Ottawa-based correspondent, Madeleine Drohan, sat down with him to discuss his brand of politics and what Canada might teach the world. Why is it that Canada is not experiencing those same trends? We are a country that has always had way more resources than people. We've always been dependent on trade with the world, so uh, an anti-trade argument really doesn't get very far in Canada from the get-go. Just before the American election, Liberty Up North featured on the cover of The Economist. And we thought, post-Trump victory, that it was a good time to return to it and mull over its reflections on Canada as one of the last liberal bastions in the West. The conversations I have internationally are very interested in what we're doing in terms of integration, in terms of uh, you know, creating success for the people coming here, in terms of language, in terms of skills training, in terms of uh, families hosting and integrating into communities as opposed to the ghettoization that happens in, in, in many countries. Uh, Our moves to counter radicalization uh, and working with different communities uh, both to reassure citizens but also to demonstrate uh, the kind of inclusion that, that, that does Um, counter the rise of violent extremism. But are there downsides to this progressive idyll? In this show, we'll focus on how Canada handles immigration, a facet of policy that's garnered most attention this year. As Europe failed to find solutions to an influx of refugees, Canada welcomed them with open arms symbolically. Here's Justin Trudeau greeting Syrian refugees at Pearson Airport in Toronto. You are home. So what are the benefits of this friendly, multicultural model, and can it be emulated? With me in the studio to tackle those questions is Douglas Murray, founder of the Centre for Social Cohesion and associate editor of The Spectator magazine. And also with me is our America's editor, Brooke Unger, who travelled around Canada for our reporting. 
Douglas and Brooke will be facing off in a bit of a boxing match with me as the referee. Welcome to you both. So let's get into round one. In an interview for this paper, Justin Trudeau expounded on multiculturalism and what it means to Canadians. We've always understood that diversity is a source of strength in our communities, not a source of weakness. And we've learnt that through uh, difficult experiences where uh, we didn't highlight that. So there is an understanding that openness to others has been part of the story of success of this country. So, Brooke, let's start with you. Is Canada's multiculturalism its big asset? Well, I think it's certainly one of its big assets. I mean, Canada has shown that it's able to uh, welcome and incorporate people from many, many different ethnic backgrounds, national backgrounds, and to cope very happily with a, a very high level of immigration, which you know Canadians believe very strongly is good for its economy and makes Canada stand out in a world where a lot of other countries are sort of slamming the doors on immigration. You know, I certainly think that it, it ought to be hardening to, to other countries that do have high levels of immigration to see a country that openly celebrates that kind of multicultural diversity. Douglas Murray sounds like a good thing. There are all sorts of things in the Canadian model that have worked quite well. I think that, generally speaking, Canada is slightly better at integration than some Western European countries, for instance. There is a problem, I have to say, of a country self-defining itself in these terms, though. To say that you are a, um, a multicultural country, a country which can integrate the world, uh, several problems with it. Firstly, of course, it's always a numbers game and it's always an identity game. Uh, as long as the numbers are comparatively low, as they have actually been in Canada recently compared to, say, Germany in the last 18 months, then some, you know, cohesion of society is possible, some integration is possible. There's also the question, though, of can a society continue with relatively high levels of immigration and identify itself as effectively an international country? And what I mean by that is we're quite used now to celebrating international cities. We all say London is a wonderful international city, but international countries is something else. And that is something which I think in the long term sets up a whole set of problems which no country can evade. Rook. I mean, first of all, you, you say that immigration into Canada is relatively low. I, I wouldn't agree that it's relatively low. I mean, Canada takes in about 300,000 uh, newcomers a year, which is close to 1% of its population. You know, it, compared with, with Britain, it, it's a much higher proportion of, of its population than, than, than the British take in. I mean, it's true that Germany um, has taken in a big influx of refugees mm. recently, but that's an except, or it has been at least an exceptional thing. I mean, Canada has been doing this for 20 or 30 years. Your, your remark that to become an international country is a problem, I think, you know, I have some sympathy with that remark. I mean, I think Canada, in a sense, has an advantage because unlike European countries, it doesn't have a sort of base culture in quite the same way that, you know, a Britain does or a France does. The difference with America is that America is, is very much a, a country based on sort of certain ideas and shared ideas and values. And Canada is less of an ideologically formed mm. country, I would say, than America is. And so it's kind of easy for Canada as, as a sort of a default option to, to say, you know, diversity is our identity. Yes. I mean, I would say that when a country starts to define itself by its multiculturalism, by its pluralism, by its internationalism. There are various things you have to do. One of them is to very, very much water down your self-definition as a country, or effectively to make it so broad as to become almost, if not entirely, meaningless. 
Canada has the advantage, as you say, of not having that strong French identity or a strong, uh, almost one might even still say a British identity that's relatively strong. And so it's, it's got an advantage in that regard. A, a relatively soft national identity is always going to find it easier to, to integrate, bring in many, many more people. Uh, if the numbers go up, continue to come up, and the identity questions continue to go, you can't avoid these discussions in perpetuity. Brooke Unger. Well, I think it's very interesting to, to look at actually the case of Quebec in Canada because Quebec has a, a slightly different problem from, from English-speaking Canada, and that is that unlike what we've said about English-speaking Canada, uh, where kind of diversity is at the very, very core of identity, you know, Quebec does have a kind of an alternative core, as it were, and that is, you know, French-speaking culture. And it actually thinks a little bit differently about immigration and multiculturalism than the rest of Canada does. And in fact, it prefers to talk about what it calls interculturalism, which is this notion that, you know, there is this kind of core, but, you know, this core can be supplemented with all kinds of other things that we, we acknowledge kind of a common core, but, you know, things can branch out from that. And I think that's a very interesting way to to look at it. And I think it's something that in a way is more applicable than to other countries that are dealing with the question of, of immigration. Well, on to round two now. Canada is clearly attractive to a certain kind of liberal. Are you foreseeing, Douglas, an exodus to Canada? Well, I can see why so many uh, liberal Americans uh, look to Canada. It's obviously got a number of things that they admire, and not least uh, a hereditary left-wing leadership. It seems to be an American democratic fetish these days. The, uh, You're referring to Justin Trudeau's family there. Absolutely. Uh, by the way, I, I don't believe this for a moment, that, that, that any of the people saying this uh, are and looking to this are really serious. I don't think there's ever going to be an exodus. Really, all of the Los Angeles liberals are really going to move to Toronto? No, I mean, I don't think, I don't think Americans are, are going to move en masse to Canada. But, but what I think will happen and could happen is, is, you know, I think that the election of Donald Trump has been has been quite damaging to American soft power. I think Canada's soft power has been sort of greatly enhanced, partly by that, you know, partly by the openness and liberalism that the, that the government of Canada preaches. And I think that will actually benefit Canada in some ways. I mean, I think you're going to see that people who, who know how to code are going to look at moving to, to Canada rather than Silicon Valley, for example. Furrowed brow from Douglas. Well, just that the soft Soft power thing interests me on this because I mean, to enjoy the benefits of soft power, you also have to have the capability to exert hard power. And uh, one of the things which I think is a mistake that Canada has fallen for, uh, but isn't alone in falling for, is this is this notion that developed Western democracies can get to a point where their best asset is their uh, liberalism, where their best asset is their export of, as it were, soft power. I just think, again, this is a temporary phase. I mean, I've seen it in other countries, Sweden being an obvious example. Sweden has a similar-ish view of its own ability to integrate that Canada does. And actually, when it takes people in very large numbers, it turns out to be horrible at integrating people, absolutely terrible at it. And meantime, it says, well, we are going to exert our soft power. Its soft power uh, suffers as a result. So Sweden, for instance, now ends up spending more in it with its annual budget on immigration costs than it does on its military. Well, I mean, uh, part of what Canada is proclaiming and being recognized for at the moment are actually things that Canada has been doing for, you know, decades, if not, if not hundreds of years. I mean, it, it has been integrating newcomers for a very long time. It has been a champion of, of free trade for a very long time. And so it's, you know, it's really the contrast that Canada represents with other parts of the West, which are moving away from that, that makes Canada so striking. So, uh, you know, I think that to, to suggest that Canada has sort of adopted some kind of a, a new 
faddish formula for success is not right. And on to round three. Let's hear from Justin Trudeau about how his election campaign handled feelings of disenfranchisement in society without, he reckons, exploiting them. We just chose to build a campaign that drew on those values and beliefs about Canada uh, in a positive way. But other leaders, including Donald Trump, have run campaigns that do exploit anxieties about migrants. How harmful has this been? And might Canada be the antidote? So, Brooke, we heard Justin Trudeau there. Some people love that elevated rhetoric. Some people think it's a bit goody-goody. Do you think that he is saying something that can readily be exported in the way that governments approach the debate, the tone of the debate about immigration? Well, I certainly think people need to hear more of what Justin Trudeau is saying, especially now. You know, that doesn't mean that the Canadian approach to multiculturalism can be sort of transferred without modification to other parts of the world. It can't. I mean, there are, you know, different countries have very different histories and very different senses of themselves. But what Trudeau is saying, I think, is is an important reminder to people who are forgetting the value of diversity and the importance of continued openness. We just chose to build a campaign that drew on values and beliefs about Canada in a positive way. Justin Trudeau tells us there, Douglas, self-praise is rarely a recommendation from political leaders, but he's got a point, hasn't he? Um, he, he does in a way. I, I think one one thing, of course, is that he, he had, it's horrible to put it in these terms, he had an enormous advantage before the last election with the tragedy of the Elan Kurdi family, which, if you remember, the, the, the young um, boy whose body was washed up on the shores of Turkey, whose family uh, appeared to be attempting finally to get to Canada. And this became a very big issue in the uh, election campaign. And the Harper government, which had been, you know, tougher in its rhetoric on immigration, and all this sort of thing. Conservative predecessor. Was definitely in, on, a, on a very weak back foot from the moment that that tragedy came forward because in the same way that a, an individual tragedy in immigration can be impossible to resist effectively. And this is what I think the Harper government and uh, the Trudeau opposition they were running at the time really took advantage of. The Canadian people did not want to be a country that turned away somebody and a young boy's body ends up on a beach. Now, I think they approached this whole debate wrongly, but undoubtedly the emotion, the emotiveness of it desperately benefited Trudeau. But surely, Brooke Unger, one of the reasons that Liberals are so attracted to Trudeau is he's one of them who actually won when so many of them are actually losing. Well, I mean, it's one of the very striking things about Canada that Canadian voters turn to, as you point out, a a dynast. And there's, you know, no sort of more middle of the road kind of centrist party in the country. And so, you know, for those of us who who, uh, don't think the establishment is awful and who favor kind of centrist middle of the road policies, it's rather heartening to see a candidate like that win. And one of the things that, that, you know, it's very early days for Justin Trudeau and, you know, he'll, he'll suffer political wear and tear like all politicians do. But, you know, he has some, some fiscal room to, to make some changes that can actually benefit people. And so, you know, I, I'm certainly hoping that his government will be kind of a demonstration for how, you know, mainstream, middle-of-the-road centrist policies can lessen resentment and, and anger. Can I make one, one point about this, by the way, which is uh, it, it seems hard to my mind to, to see much water between what Trudeau ran on 
and what Ignatiev ran on, the previous uh, uh, head of the Liberal Party in Canada, who, of course, led them to a catastrophic defeat. And I'm not sure what lessons one can take from this, other than uh, that Trudeau was, was a more attractive personality and was not seen to be a sort of Harvard Law professor who'd, who'd pop by uh, uh, to, to run the country for a bit. Uh, but, but that suggests it's a cult of personality, not a success of Liberal politics. And our final round four. Brooke, can liberalism be imposed from the top down, as some might think Canadians do? Well, I'm not sure it's right to say that Canada is imposing liberalism from the top down. Um, You know, I think there is kind of a Canadian consensus. That Canadian consensus has been built up over a long time. You know, it's enshrined in in Canada's documents. But I think it's something that that Canadians pretty much buy, buy into, this notion of good government, peace, order, respect for other people. There's a very interesting observation that uh, Fleming Rose, the Danish uh, editor, made in his book on free speech recently, which was that that the presumption of political leaders across the Western world has been the more diverse a society becomes, uh, the less speech you can have, the less free speech should have. He makes the point, and I entirely agree with it, actually, the more diverse society, the more you've got to get used to a very wide range of speech, and that they've got it exactly wrong, the political uh, class on this. Canada, to this extent, has got it more wrong than anyone. Because Canada has not only the same uh, hate speech laws and things that have come in in Western democracies in Western Europe, but also another set of courts, uh, the Human Rights Commission, which act as courts in Canada. Anyone can take a complaint about anyone to these courts. They drag you through a process that can often last years, at the end of which people get fined, people get silenced. Effectively, you, you can be stopped from writing but give me by an, these Give courts. me an example. Let me give you an example. I know a couple of people who've suffered from this, uh, journalists in Canada. Mark Stein, for instance, uh, wrote a cover piece in Maclean's magazine some years ago, and various Muslim groups in Canada complained about it. And he was taken through a set of these so-called human rights uh, tribunals where people who, who couldn't even make the clock on the wall work decided to police the sentiment, ask questions about the jokes. Was this joke appropriate and all this sort of thing? And the interesting thing about this is that, that the process is the punishment. People end up hundreds of thousands of dollars out of pocket. And this is a government-enforced uh, uh, silencing. Now, that does sound like liberalism from the top down, Brooke. It actually sounds like conservatism from the top down or, or um, restricted liberalism from the top down, which you just described as the opposite of liberalism. And I, yeah, don't, I, think so. I, I, I don't defend it either. But where I would disagree with you is you seem to be implying that an openness to cultural diversity is necessarily connected to a um, rigidity on on free speech. And I certainly don't think that has to be the case. I mean, it is true that Canada has both in some ways, but, you know, that is more of a coincidence than a necessity, I would say. I I agree. It's it's not necessary, but I would say it's commonplace in each country grappling with this. And and to that extent, Canada is, is typical. Very quick thought, if I may. One reason why Canada is is slightly better on this, and some praise should be given, is that they have had they are light years ahead of most other countries on the details of integration. And one very quick example: under the Harper government, the last Conservative government, they had an integration minister in Jason Kenney, who I remember once when he visited London was so far ahead of his London counterparts. Uh, they had a problem at the time of some radical Muslim groups in Canada, and when he came to London, he met a, a Muslim leader in London. Uh, who 
who did he meet? And of course, all the civil servants were delighted. It all looked great. He met an Ahmadiyya leader in London, a leader of a minority sect. That was so intelligent. He met the minority leader, but he met a minority leader who the really crazy people back in Canada would have hated him seeing. He effectively smoked out the bad guys within his own country. That is so much more developed than anything you'd get from London or Washington. Douglas Murray and Brooke Anger teasing out the Canadian model there. Thank you both. Thank Thank you. you. Let's go back now to the tempestuous theme of immigration. Jonathan Tepperman is author of The Fix, How Nations Survive and Thrive in a World in Decline. And Jonathan sat down with me to assess what's distinctive about Canada's approach to the subject. Canada's commitment to um, immigration in its current form dates uh, back decades now, as far back as the late 1960s, early 1970s. And if anything, it was the previous Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, who was the outlier, uh, not the current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. Two of Canada's last three governors general, that's the formal head of state, the, the Queen's representative in Canada, were not just immigrants, but came to Canada as refugees. And although immigration reform was originally a, a, a liberal cause, it quickly became a bipartisan one. And the Conservative Party got on board years ago when it recognized how immigrants to Canada were contributing to the country's economic and social fabric in many, many ways. The previous Conservative government uh, initially under Harper worked very hard to court those voters, but towards the end of his administration, he fell uh, into the temptation of running a, a, a more American-style xenophobic campaign, and he was punished for it at the polls. But let's focus on how you lead public opinion if you have a, a quite fraught mood about Im- immigration across democracies. And the fix focuses quite a lot on, on leadership, and you, you talk about that in the way that Canadians think about immigration, but that they have been encouraged and led that way to do so. And yet it doesn't seem to always work, does it? If we look at the case of Angela Merkel, who encouraged Germany to take in a large number of refugees in the welcome culture, initially half in half popular, now really not very popular at all. So even her leadership as a very established and respected figure didn't seem to sway the public. Right. Well, that's because Canada did two very smart things almost simultaneously. On the one hand, uh, it reconfigured its immigration system to stress the economic value that um, migrants could contribute, um, thereby producing material benefits that everyone could enjoy. And at the same time, it started pushing very hard um, to get uh, to, to help immigrants integrate into the country and also to convince ordinary Canadians that immigration, pluralism, diversity was a net good. That is, that it would make Canada more Canadian and not less. And it's in these last two efforts that the Germans and many Northern European countries have really fallen down. They have welcomed large number of immigrants, but historically have not been very good at integrating them into society. So you get these large ghettoized underclasses that everybody is unhappy about, both the immigrants and the native-born. How do you think Canada has managed to go at this question of how you integrate very diverse peoples together and how much pressure is then put on on things like language training or something where you absolutely have to become Canadian? You know, from from the moment that Canada launched its multicultural policy in 1971, Trudeau made it clear that while everyone was now welcome to and encouraged to retain their 
traditional or, or cultural of origin, there was a condition. And the condition was that they were expected to become Canadian and to contribute to Canada in a robust way. And so there has, from the start, been a strong emphasis on um, uh, and pressure on, on new Canadians to do things like learn English and French um, and integrate into the community in other ways. Now, Canada has never taken it to the extremes that France has, for example, by banning overt symbols of Islam, which has had the effect of not of making these immigrant populations more French, but of alienating them and making them feel less French. I wonder what ways you would choose to highlight if you were asked to give other countries lessons, perhaps from Canada, and where you think there might still be challenges or trends that are in danger of being reversed. What I what I'd encourage other countries to do is to follow the two-faced or binary model that Canada did, which is, on the one hand, to look to economic factors. But, you know, beneath that, to, to use a rational basis for determining who gets into the country and who, who doesn't. The problem with the system that the United States uses, for example, family reunification, which we touched on earlier, is that it lets a completely arbitrary factor, which is whether an individual's relatives have had the dumb luck to get into the country before that particular individual, it lets that arbitrary factor determine the shape of the country's immigrant population. And what Canada has done is taken a much more more rational approach. And on the one hand, you have the economic factors, the criteria that we keep stressing. But on the other hand, you have this very robust effort to sell Canadians on the cultural as well as the economic benefits of this program. So is Canada's success guaranteed to last forever? Absolutely not. If the government turns away from the policies that have proved so successful in the last few decades, fortunately, there's no sign of that happening. Canada is a very large country in terms of landmass, but the population is small. It's just over 30 million. And economic growth is also predicted to pick up anyway as, as oil production is predicted to, to rise again. So we might say you've got quite a lot of sweet spots there for Canada that other countries don't share and that other economic factors may be driving this more than the cultural willingness to accept immigrants. Good points. People often point to exactly what you've just said, as well as the fact that Canada is surrounded by oceans, the United States to its south, the Arctic to its north, and so has a very little problem with illegal immigration, all of which to say that Canada just got lucky. But the fact of the matter is that size doesn't really determine whether native-born populations are worried about immigrants taking their jobs, whether the jobs are five miles away or one, one mile away. The country's geography doesn't really affect that concern. And as for illegal immigration, it's very interesting to note that while it's true that Canada has little in the way of undocumented migrants, it's about three to six percent of the population, the UK has almost exactly the same figure, and yet immigration is two to three times more unpopular among the general British population than it is among the Canadian one. And what that tells you is how important government policies are in shaping public attitudes. That was Jonathan Teverman, author of The Fix. But we'll end our show with a reflection from Justin Trudeau. We Canadians are modest. If he says so himself, well, that's all from this episode of The Economist Asks. And do send us your thoughts on the Canadian model and what it might have to teach the rest of us. Join us again next time on the show when we'll be asking, what does Vladimir Putin want? In London, this is The Economist.